The rest of you shall be tur- should be turning in your Bibles to um, Dan- the book of Daniel. We will have no specific text in the book of Daniel because we're just going to, to review um, the book of Daniel. And then just for your information, because I know you're asking and you're wondering that the next book we will be studying is the book of Luke. We'll start that at the end of the month because um, in, not next week, but the week after um, Simone and I will be in Ecuador. So please keep that in prayer. And so we'll be in Ecuador for a couple of weeks. I don't want to start it next week and then abandon it for a couple of weeks and come back to it. So next week will just be a surprise as to what we talk about. And uh, which is just code for I have no idea what we're going to talk about next, <laughs> next week. Um, but anyways, uh, the Lord will bless. But then we'll start the book of Luke. And we have uh, that is the one gospel that we have not covered since I have been here. Um, So we've in the past 15 years, we've covered Matthew and Mark and John as far as gospels, but not the gospel of Luke. And I suppose we will be in the gospel of Luke for quite some time. So um, anyways, but today is the we will uh, review the book of Daniel. If you will, let us stand and pray the blessing on God's word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, the one who reveals truth, the one who is truth, the one who is far above all worlds in creation and yet dwells in the midst of his people. We give you praise and thanks that you have called us to gather in this building today, that your church has been called at your bidding to gather and give praise and honor and glory to your wondrous name. And so today, Father, we come and we humble ourselves before you. We thank you, Father, that you have forgiven us of our sins, Lord God, and we confess them now. We are not worthy to enter into your presence. We are not worthy to hear your voice. We are not worthy to experience your glory. And yet, Father God, by the blood of Christ and by the merits of Christ, you have forgiven us of our sins, not in part, but in whole. And so they have been cast into the sea. They have been tossed behind your back. You remember them no more. They are as far as the east is from the west. And we are assured, Father God, that you have forgiven us of all of our sins. And so we come before you this day rejoicing and celebrating that you have accepted us and called us your children, sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so now, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray, Father God, that you would give me a mouth to speak. I pray, Father God, that you would open our hearts that we might receive your glorious and beautiful word. So have mercy upon us now and reveal to us great things that we do not know and remind us, Lord God, of great things we already know and help us to live out the truth of what we hear and believe. We ask these things for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. So a while back, I was reading an, uh, an article, and um, 
It was written by a man by the name of Mark Tushnet. He is a professor of law at Harvard Law School. Dr. Tushnet's article basically states this, that the moral revolutionaries have won and that those who hold to a traditional moral view uh, should recognize that they have lost the cultural wars and that they basically not should just go away, but they should be punished as war criminals, basically. He describes those of us who might hold to things like traditional marriage, let's just say that uh, because we happen to believe that um, marriage is one man, one woman for life. Um, because I believe that there are only two sexes, um, male and female, not 57 like Facebook says, or 57 genders. There's only two, and I say that scientifically speaking, because there are only two. And because we don't believe that, that we ought to be punished as war criminals, he states, And because we believe in things like life, that those who are coming to the end of their lives need honor and dignity, and those who have perhaps some sort of disability are not to be put away, not to be slaughtered, not to be killed, and those who have not yet been born are also not to be slaughtered. Because those who hold such views have lost the cultural battle, they've lost the cultural war, and the moral revolutionaries have won. He states, he goes on and states that these moral revolutionaries now own the court system. And he brings up evidence on how they own the court system. They own the narrative. They own the press. And they have won. And therefore, there are two options for the victors. The one is to treat the losers, such as myself, um, with kindness and tolerance. Or the other is to treat them as any loser in battle, and that is to eliminate and sign. either come along and join with us or you need to be eliminated. Simply such as he brings up, he says, such as in World War Two, when Nazism and the uh, Japanese Imperial Army was crushed, then they came to terms of surrender and they had to um, abide by the rules and the laws that were given to them by the victors or Similarly, in the Civil War, the South, when it lost, had to ascribe by the laws and the rules and the mandates of the, of the victorious army. And he is stating now that the moral revolutionaries have won. And therefore, you who have lost either need to get on board or be treated as war criminals. That's Professor Tushnet's position. We may argue whether or not the moral revolutionaries have won and we have lost. I don't know. But it's a very interesting worldview. It's a very interesting perspective. And so the question as we come to the close of the book of Daniel, and all I'm going to do today is review the book of Daniel, is how do you and I who hold to biblical truth, how do we live in a world such as proposed by Dr. Tushnet? How do we live faithfully to God in a world that is certainly maybe not there, but is the trajectory is moving in that direction. How do you and I live faithfully to God in a world that is increasingly antagonistic towards a biblical worldview? How do we do that? And so we are 
continuing then our study in the book of Daniel. What I'm going to do today is just do an overview. We are just do Daniel in review. When we started Daniel, I gave you a preview of the book. Today, we're just going to review it. And I think it's needful for us to do these reviews when we come to the end of a book. And the reason being is because we actually started this study on January 9th. And since January 9th, we've picked apart the book of Daniel. And it's easy to, um, to lose the big picture of a particular book. That is, we get so focused on the trees, we forget there's a forest, and we get so focused on the details, we forget the big story. And I want to kind of go back and remind ourselves of the big story of the book of Daniel. And so today, I think it's needful, I think it's beneficial to provide a comprehensive overview of the entire book of Daniel. And as I was praying and seeking the Lord, how ought we to go about doing this? How do I present this big story of the book of Daniel and the, in a reasonable amount of time, you know, that doesn't matter to me. But anyways, I prayed about it, but then I threw that out. But it, so I just thought, well, here's what we'll do. We'll go through what we've been presenting. There are two big themes, two big questions that um, have that present themselves in the book of Daniel. And really, since chapter one, we've been proposing these two questions as the kind of the undercurrent um, running underneath the book of Daniel all the way through. And those two questions are this. One I've already suggested to you. And the first question is this. How do I live faithfully in a godless society? How do I live faithfully in a culture that is increasingly antagonistic towards godliness? So how do I do that? Um, And that's a question that runs throughout the book of Daniel. But there's a second question, and it is much more basic than that. And that is, is God worth serving? We can ask ourselves, how do I live faithfully to God? But even a more basic question, is God worth serving? Is he worth the sacrifice? Is he worth the diligence? Is he worth the discipline? Is he worth the the effort of living for him? And so those are the two questions that we have been addressing as we've gone through the book of Daniel. And so my message today will be dealing with those two things. I'll handle the first question first and the second question second. How do you like that? So, yeah. Uh, So we'll deal with uh, uh, how does a person live for God in a culture that does not recognize God as Lord? And this is important or this is clear for us in the book of Daniel because Daniel lived faithfully towards God in a godless society. Daniel was in exile. Remember that? So in 605 B.C., um, uh, Jerusalem fell and Daniel was taken um, out of Jerusalem um, uh, and, and taken into exile, taken basically as a slave and put into the king's service in Babylon. He was in exile. And Daniel's, was, Daniel's customs were different than the customs of Babylon. He was kind of seen as odd. He was different. He had different dietary laws and he had he observed the Sabbath and, and, and his God was there was one, not a bunch of different gods. And so Daniel was seen as a little bit um, different. But the fact of the matter is this. All of us are exiles. And, and I say that not just to make a preaching point, but I say that because the Bible tells us New Testament authors refer to us as those who are living in exile. For instance, we see 
In First Peter chapter 117, look what Peter says. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Beloved, I urge you as what? Sojourners. Those are people who are just passing through. And exiles. That is, you're living outside of your home country. You are sojourners passing through. You are not in your home countries. This is what I urge you to do. And later on, or I'm sorry, earlier on, Peter says this. He says, And if you call on him as father who judges in part, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's talking about this time in which you live upon this earth. You are an exile. And so don't be surprised as an exile if your customs and your ethics and your mores are a little seen as a little bit different, seen as at odds with the country in which you are sojourning through, to which you have been exiled, to which you are um, ambassadors. And so. When we talk about exiles, what we are saying is that our customs, our morals, our worldview are maybe at odds to the surrounding culture. In other words, we don't always fit in. Sometimes we just are the odd one out. You ever been that way? You ever been in a group and it's like you're the only one who whatever upholds a certain biblical standard that nobody else in the group does? And sometimes that there's some, oh, okay, that's fine. And other times it's, there's some antagonism uh, expressed towards you. So anyways, I want to look at some of the ways that Daniel lived faithfully to God in a, as an exile. But he continued to live faithfully to God. And, and the first way we should note is that Daniel remained unconformed or nonconformed or unmolded. That is he uh, he refused to be molded by the worldview of Babylon. And this is this was especially difficult because conformity would be rewarded if you want to advance, if you want to succeed, if you want to get ahead, if you want to do something or be somebody, then listen, just fit in. Don't rock the boat. Don't uphold your standards. And things will probably be go a lot smoother for you. But Daniel would not be conformed. Daniel took a stand. There were certain things that living in Babylon, Daniel simply had to adopt. For instance, Daniel ended up with a Babylonian name. Daniel ended up dressing like the Babylonians. Daniel had uh, a, a number of titles, even his title. He was a magician. All right. Um, a conjurer. He even took on that title. But there were some areas, uh, one in particular, where Daniel said, no more. I will not be conformed to the mold that Babylon is trying to squeeze me into. In other words, Babylon had Daniel's body, but Daniel made sure that Babylon did not take his mind. And so he took a stand. And he said, I will not be conformed to Babylon's standards. And we see that especially in Daniel chapter 1. And so, um, without rehearsing that, you can listen to that online, that message online. But we should ask ourselves, how do we live as exiles um, in, in this world? And, and I guess my first question would be this, is what is molding you? What is conforming you? What is causing you to not simply look like the culture, but actually begin to believe and act like the culture. 
that is antagonistic to God who created us. We, we, we should ask ourselves, will we subject our activities to the purifying filter of God's word? In other words, will we filter all of our decisions and all of our activities and all of our, our uh, next steps in our future? Will we, will we subject those to the filter of God's word? Will we take on... Will we do as God has called us to do? Or will we simply say, you know what? I can just go ahead and live however I want to live and God will love me no matter what. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Oh, I put it up there. That's helpful. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we see a negative. Do not be conformed and then to this world. And then we see something positive, but be transformed. And without getting into detail, this idea of world isn't the cosmos. It's not this physical world, but rather it's the principles. It's the it's the values of this world. Don't be conformed. Don't let this world conform you to its values and to its principles and to its mores. But, but rather be transformed. How are we transformed? Um, by the renewing of our mind. Um, and, and we'll get into to, to some of that. And so we want to subject ourselves to the purifying filter of God's word. So I, I need to ask then, how do we deal with just basic things? How do we... Uh, some of you are retired. And some of you are just tired. And that's an old joke, but... Anyways, don't record that. But if you thought about how do you live out your retirement for the glory of God, or do you simply just say, well, you know what? I've made my money. I've got some time off. I've got a check coming in and I've got my mortgage good and I'm just going to do such and such. Have you subjected that to the word of God? What does God expect for us to do? And so as Simone and I, we're getting there. As, as we think about the future, and we think about what are we going to do when we retire, we think, will we ever retire from serving God? Absolutely not. Nobody ever retires from serving God. So we're thinking to ourselves, perhaps when we, when we retire, if that day ever were to come, We've got some some experience and perhaps we would have some freedom and some time. Perhaps we could give ourselves to the training up of people to carry on the work of God. Maybe we would have more time for missionary work or perhaps we would have more time to pour into young believers or whatever. It's like. You will never stop being a child of God and you will never stop being a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do you filter retirement through the word of God. You get a raise at work. Praise God. What do you do with the extra? Is your first thought a new toy? Is it a new bike? Not that I would think that. <laughs> or do we say, how do... God has blessed me so much. Maybe you just need to meet, make more, make, meet your bills. Maybe you're finally catching up. Great. Praise God that you're able to, uh, to uh, make ends meet in better. But 
How do you live with the surplus that God has given you? Are, are we generous? Or, or do we just make sure that we have more time to buy new stuff? And I'm not opposed to new stuff. I like new stuff. I'm just saying, what's the balance? And how do we filter this through the Word of God? And so when we deal with how do we consume? We have stuff. What Do we consume more and more and more? Or do we give more and more and more? And so when we think about things like consumption and generosity and vocation and, and time and leisure and sex and pleasure and education and how to raise our child and how to look at the environment, how do we deal with these things? Perhaps maybe we could begin right here with the household of faith. How do we view our Sunday mornings, our Lord's Day mornings? Do we come saying, well, I hope that I'm entertained and I hope everything is just... Have we turned our Sunday morning worship service into a commodity that can be bought and sold? In other words... You know, I went there on Sunday morning, but I didn't get the value that I think I deserved. I know you'd never say this, but think about it. But I did not get the value that I think I deserved. I will go somewhere then that gives me what I think I deserved. After all, I threw a 20 into the plate, and I did not get 20 bucks worth of return on my payment. Our job here is not to entertain you. I pray that I pray that you, it is a joyful experience to be in the house of the Lord with the people of God on the day of the Lord. I pray that that happens, and I pray that it's enjoyable. I pray that you love being here. A job, our job, I believe, though, is to direct our hearts and our minds to the God who made us and created us. And that in doing so, we will find our greatest joy, because our greatest joy is in Him. It is, and it is, and when we do that, I think that we will find our great pleasure and joy. So, do we make the holy a commodity? So the first thing, don't be molded. Do, do we expect the church service to be exactly like the concert or the movie or the play that we went to last night? I hope that our worship services commit one of the world's unforgivable sins. And one of the world's unforgivable sins is dead space. Silence. Dead air. I think when we gather together before our holy God, sometimes it's good to just shut down and contemplate and think about Maybe the song that we just sang or the prayer that we just prayed or the exclamation of adoration that we just proclaimed about how great our God is. Perhaps it is wise sometimes just to have a time where we say, my sin, oh, the thought, my sin, not in part, but in whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.
Daniel refused to be molded by Babylon. Living in exile means that we live unmolded by the culture around us. But Daniel was also hopeful. And when I say he's hopeful, I do not mean that he's just kind of hanging on, hoping everything works out. First of all, we should note that Daniel was hopeful because Daniel was, Daniel's hope was grounded in God's word. It was the foundation of Daniel's hope. In fact, the, the very fact that he's in exile, Daniel understands the fact that he's in exile is evidence that God is faithful. Because you'll remember back in Deuteronomy, well, even back in Leviticus, God said, if you do not keep my covenant... My covenant with you is to send you into exile. That's what's going to happen. That's my promise to you. I promise to send you into exile if you do not keep my covenant. And they did not keep their covenant. And Daniel was in exile. And he's going, well, this is evidence then that God is faithful to his word. The fact that we're where we're at proves that God hasn't abandoned us. As unpleasant as this is, it demonstrates that God has not abandoned us, that God is continuing to fulfill His purposes and His promises in us. And this is what He said would happen. And so Daniel's hope was grounded in an understanding of who God was. And so God was faithful to His covenant in the past. He's faithful to His covenant right now in the present for Daniel. And therefore, Daniel understood that God will be faithful to His promises in the future. He will not back down and He will not neglect and He will not relegate His promises to some sort of forgetfulness. He will remember what He said. And so, Daniel often saw visions. Many visions were given to Daniel and Daniel saw future things. And some of those future things were not pleasant. Some of those future things indicated that the people of God would be slaughtered. And even then, Daniel saw hope. Why did he see hope? Why did he see hope in such turmoil and such trial and such difficulty? Daniel was hopeful because he saw beyond the trial and the slaughtering and the persecution. And he saw a God who was bigger than all of that. He saw a God who had an everlasting kingdom. And we see this in chapter 7. We see God sitting on the throne and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And he saw the Son of Man who is King of kings and Lord of lords sitting on the throne and judging the living and the dead and striking down those who uh, come against the people of God. He saw that. He saw not only the Son of Man sitting high above and to whom all the kingdoms of the world were giving. He also saw him the Son of God being given as a substitute for sins. That is, that God not only would deliver people from their temporary persecutors, but He would deliver them from the thing that kept them separated from God in the first place, and that was their sin. He saw a Messiah who would redeem them. He was hopeful because there's going to come a day when there's a new covenant made, just like Jeremiah said, and that new covenant will give us a new heart, and we will no longer have tablets of stone, but the laws of God written on our heart, and His Spirit will be given to us, and we will live for Him, and even though you slay me, yet I will live because God will raise the dead. That's what he saw. And he could count on it because he knew that God was faithful to his covenant. He never abandoned it and he would never let it go. God was faithful in the past. God's faithful in the present. Whatever I see happening in the future, my God will not back down from what he said. Are you hopeful? He saw a purpose beyond the present. This motivated Daniel to... Um, to be evangelistic in what he did. And we're studying downstairs on... Sunday mornings in our Bible study about evangelism. And Daniel's hopefulness 
prompted him to share the good news. He constantly went before like King Nebuchadnezzar. And instead of being fearful of guys like King Nebuchadnezzar, who could squash him like a bug and end his life in a moment, he said, no, you're not the king. God Almighty is the king. And until you recognize that, he's going to humble you and bring you down. But one day, if you'll recognize it, he will lift you up. Imagine that, a slave saying that to the king. Daniel preached the gospel to kings. When Belshazzar had put him on the shelf and kind of ignored him, he comes in and Belshazzar says, I'll give you all this king. Keep the riches for yourself. Let me tell you about the God that you are rejecting. And call you to a place of repentance. When the Babylonian kingdom came to an end and the Persian kingdom rose up and Daniel kept going and he went before Darius and he proclaimed the gospel and called Darius to humble himself before God Almighty. He called Cyrus, the great king, to humble himself before God Almighty. Because he was hopeful. He knew if I share the gospel, if I share the good news, if I share about my God with these people, maybe they will humble themselves in turn. So his hopefulness was not just a hanging on, clinging to maybe something will work out. No, he clung to the fact that God's word is true and faithful and God will not abandon it. And I can have a, I know that we have a future and a hope because God will not back down on his word. He was hopeful. Daniel was also steadfast, and I won't spend a whole lot of time here. But the book of Daniel begins, and we'll bring this up again, the book of Daniel begins when Daniel is perhaps in his early teens, 13, 14 perhaps, and it ends when he's in his 80s, perhaps into his 90s. See, and Daniel was steadfast. All the kings came and went. Laws changed. Uh, sometimes things went good. Sometimes things didn't go so well. Sometimes he was bestowed with riches and honors and sometimes he was in the lion's den and Daniel never wavered. How about you? We're living in this, living in exile. Are we steadfast? Are we unwavering in our desire and in our commitment to serve a, a God? He survives kings. He survives empires. They come and go and Daniel knows what it is to be in the lion's den. He knows what it is also to have wealth. And his gaze is never distracted. Folks, here's the thing. As we sojourn in this exile, there will come times where we will be distracted by trial. Perhaps the lion's den or something difficult. Perhaps you lose a loved one who you care about deeply. Perhaps a child, a grandchild. Perhaps a, a loved one who you care about. Will I'm not saying well, we shouldn't mourn. Please don't think that. I'm just saying, will that cause us to say, well, I wonder where God was? Or will we say, my God raises the dead? Because that's where Daniel ends up. In chapter 12, Daniel ends up with God raises the dead. How about this, though? When God lavishes upon you his great and wondrous blessings and you have great ease and leisure, will you abandon the Lord and say, I no longer have time for the God who gave me all of these things. And uh, I just, I got so many things I got to do now that I've always wanted to do. Will leisure and ease and prosperity cause you to uh, waver or will you be steadfast? Daniel experienced the highs and the lows of life and he was steadfast. Folks, I know it's cliche, but let me just say it. And that is the Christian faith is not a sprint. It's a marathon. You know that. But it is a matter of living faithfully to God every single day. Some days are harder than others. But it is staying steadfast against the, the waves that crash against us. 
Will you stand? Daniel stood. And finally, living in exile, Daniel was prayerful. And I should say this, he was persistently prayerful. Once again, Daniel came into exile as a youth and he exited exile as an old man. We don't know if he actually went back to to Jerusalem, or if he died in captivity. Either way, Daniel was a man of prayer from the time he was a teenager until the time he was an elderly man. We see this in Daniel chapter 2 when he was just a kid with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their lives were threatened. And what does Daniel do? Daniel calls a prayer meeting. We got a problem, guys. We need to do something. What do you suggest, Daniel? I know. Let's pray. But that's not the only place Daniel prays. We see Daniel praying in, uh, in, in chapter 6. We see Daniel praying most famously in chapter 9 in Daniel's prayer. It's based on God's word. And then we see Daniel praying in chapter 10, which brings about the vision that uh, takes us all the way to the end of the book. So Daniel, from the very beginning of his life to the very end of his life, was a man of prayer. How do you live in exile? You better be prayerful. Daniel prayed privately. We see this in chapter 6 when people said, oh, you can't pray to the living God. And Daniel just said, well, I'm just going to keep praying. This is what I do. It got him thrown into the lion's den, but he kept praying. He prayed with his brothers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His prayer was based upon God's word. Just go to Daniel chapter 9 and read how Daniel prays. First of all, he acknowledges God. The whole prayer, much of the prayer is about, God, you are great. You are worthy. You are holy. You are just. You have done all of these great and wondrous things. You have never wavered. You have never faltered. You You are awesome and mighty creator of all things. Your prayers sound like that? It's a good way to start your prayer. Or a good place to be in the middle of the prayer. Or even end your prayer. It's also penitent. As great and holy and awesome as you, we, God, have sinned against you. And your holy commandments we have not kept. We have altogether gone astray. And to us alone belongs the shame. And all of your judgments against us are just. Do you pray like that? Daniel's prayer anticipated an answer. We love Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 because it was answered immediately. But not all of his prayers were answered immediately. But Daniel was a man of prayer. So let me just say this. We need to be prayerful. But let me state this. The other three things that I just mentioned, unmolded, hopeful, and steadfast, they do not happen unless you are prayerful. You cannot expect to be unconformed to this world. You cannot expect to have hope beyond the present. You cannot expect to be steadfast in a world that is constantly changing unless you are persistently prayerful. I pray that the Lord would make us persistently prayerful. So a quick summary then on how to live faithfully. At the very basis of all of this is an adherence to God's word. God's word forms the foundation of all of this, because you could, I wrestled with this, I thought, well, probably prayer does, but no, Daniel knows to pray because he's read God's word. Daniel's prayers are entirely consumed with God's word. So a faithfulness to God's word. And then there's a faithfulness to prayer to be unwavering and unconformed. How do we live in exile? How do we live faithfully to a God in a godless culture? Well, 
we do so by being prayerful, by being, remember to stay steadfast. Remember, our God is the God who, who owns the future. And we should not be conformed to the molding pressures of this world. Well then, we come to our second question. Our second question then is this. Is God worth doing all of that for, really? That means I've got to get up and pray, and that means I've got to resist temptation. I'd rather just give in. That means I've got to, you know, oh, it's just a lot of work. I'd rather go fishing. Please don't get mad. Fishing's okay. So tell me, is the God you're telling me about worth doing all that for? I'll give you the answer, yes, but now I'll tell you why. First of all, let's talk about the God worth living for. Let's discuss, first of all, his perfections. And first under his perfections is this, that God is sovereign. What I mean by that is um, that God is in control. And probably nothing better states this in the book of Daniel than the first two verses. Look at them. This is, this is kind of like the introduction to the book of Daniel. And Daniel's telling us exactly where he's going. So, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem to besiege it. Who's in control? Looks like Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, wait, read verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is not the boss of the world. He is not the king of anything. Whatever kingship he has has been given to him by Almighty God. And God gave him Jerusalem. And it goes on. God gave, God gave, God did this, God permitted, God allowed, God said. All of these, all the way through, I think I gave you a whole list of stuff from chapter one all the way to the end of chapter 11. We could probably get into chapter 12, but I probably got tired. See, God is God over kings. God is God over nations. God is God over human degrees. He is God of, of the laws and he is the God of the empires. And he is even the God of Harvard law professors. They will bow the knee before him, if not before that last day. Someday the gospel will come to him that we pray, and he will confess and bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. But if not, there will come a day when God, who is in sovereign over all, will call him to account. We'll deal with that later on. So God is in control. But God is not only in control. We talked about how God is both transcendent and imminent. Those are just fancy words to say that God is over all and yet he is near us. So when the gods of Babylon in chapter 2, they said, who can reveal this dream to the king? And they asked the, the conjurers and the magicians, and they said, this is only known by the gods, but the gods don't speak to us. They were right on one thing, that these, there is knowledge that, only, that is transcendent knowledge, that only something or someone outside of this universe can have knowledge of. They understood that. And our God is a God who exists outside the realm of creation, but he is not dependent upon creation. He does not need creation for his existence. He is not dependent upon it. And so God is 
is the God who knows all things. He is outside of creation. But if we stop there, we have an incomplete view of God, just like the Babylonians did. They said that knowledge exists with the gods and they don't speak with men. But Daniel's God, the God in Scripture, oh, God says, I am the high and lifted and glorious one and I make my place with the humble and the contrite of heart and I dwell in the midst of my people. This is the God who has knowledge that knowledge that nothing, no one else can have. He knows all things and yet he exists with you and me. He is the creator of all things but he is not like the deist God who wound everything up and then goes and exists without any concern with what he has created. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who have made everything and he dwells in the midst of his people. He is transcendent and he is imminent. He is involved in a relationship with his creation. And we see this most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created, I'm sorry, Genesis 1, 1. That's a good verse too. <clears throat> in the beginning, and John was going, anyways. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and he created all things that came into being and then in John chapter 1, 14, and this Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld. Do you see the transcendence and the imminence? The God who created everything came and dwelt with you and me. Not only did he come and dwell with you and me, but he bore our sins at Calvary so that you and I would not simply be removed from and Uh, separated from God for eternity, but that we would have an imminent personal life with him for eternity. So the God of creation took on flesh, dwelt among us, hung on a tree, shed his blood, that you and I might have forgiveness of sins, that we might be with him forever and ever. That is the God who is transcendent and imminent. Is he worth serving? I think so. He is also the God who is truthful, and I'll just kind of hustle through these things. We see this in chapters 1, chapter 8, and chapter 10. In other words, what God says is trustworthy. You read chapter 8, and you go, what is the meaning for all of this intricate detail here? The king of the north and the south and the queen and all of these things. What is the purpose for all of this minutia that seems to just bog down the book? It is there because you and I, at least, can look back and say, oh my goodness. God fulfilled this too exactly, utterly precisely. And that it was written so that when people were going through trouble, living in the times that Daniel was talking about in Daniel chapter 8, they would say, oh, the God of history has not abandoned us. We can have hope. And so God is in his perfections. Is he worth serving? Yes, because in his perfections, he is in control. He is both transcendent and he is truthful. But God is not only perfect, God is also the judge. And we see this in Daniel chapter 7, this courtroom scene where God is seated on his, this fiery throne and that he is the ever-present eternal God and that he sits in judgment, and the court has been gathered, witnesses have been gathered, and the court is in session, and books are open, and swift judgment comes. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, once again, we see books that are open, and the dead are raised, some to eternal life, and some to eternal condemnation. But our God is a consuming fire, and he is the judge of the living and the dead. And sometimes we don't like to think about God as a judge, but there he is. He is the judge, and he is a righteous judge, and he will judge things perfectly. But 
you say, well, I don't know. I don't like all that. Oh, God's going to God judge my, you know, somebody for being unrighteous. Yeah, he will. But here's the thing about God as the judge. God as the judge is also a messianic judging God. That is, he is the savior of rebels. Will God judge rebels? Absolutely. But note this. God has provided the means for rebels to become children of his. Chapter 9 depicts God delivering the remedy to the problem. He removes Babylon from his people. And, and so as we look in, in Daniel chapter 9, and you know my, my understanding probably differs from, from what's popular out there, and that the king and that the prince and the Messiah are the same people um, all the way through. And it is the prince who, after half a week, cuts off the covenant, or break, the, the covenant is broken, sacrifices are stopped. What happened? This is exactly what Jesus did. It's not talking about Antichrist. It's talking about Jesus Christ, who brings an end to sacrifice and offering. He is the sacrifice. He is the offering. He is the one who provides a remedy for sin. The very problem, the very thing that brought Babel or Israel into Babylon was their sin. And if you just send them back, the sin problem hasn't been dealt with. And God says, no, I'm going to provide a savior who will deal with the sin problem, take away sin and restore my people and give them a new heart. And I will put my spirit in them. I'm going to do that through a Messiah, Jesus Christ, who offers himself as a substitute for man's rebellion. He will die in man's place. He will die in your place so that you and I, as rebels against God, can be made kingdom citizens, sons and daughters of the Most High God, not just sons and daughters of the kingdom, but heirs of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. So yeah, he's a judge, but he's also the savior of those who are rebels against him. Oh, but wait, there's more. God is not only a judge and a messianic judge, but he is a missionary God. That is, he reaches into the darkest kingdoms to bring his light. And we saw this. God invaded Babylon. We saw this in chapter 2 when God came to, to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. He invaded Babylon and he revealed himself. He revealed himself in the book of Daniel. He revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar. He revealed himself to Belshazzar. He revealed himself to Darius. He revealed himself to Cyrus. He came to the kings and he said, I am the God of the universe, not you. Now humble yourself and you will be saved. And he used Daniel, his servant, to proclaim this truth. I want you to know God continues to reach to the darkest corners of this earth. God is a missionary God. That is one of the reasons we do missions is because we are to be like our Heavenly Father, whether it's missions to your neighbor next door or it's missions across the world. We are to be missionary people because our God is a missionary God and he uses flawed individuals like you and me to bring his glorious message. And so God continues to reach to the darkest places of the earth. He reached out to Adam when Adam sinned against him. Adam, where are you? He went to find Adam. Adam never went looking for God. God found Adam. And then he went to Nineveh. As we're studying in the book of Jonah on Wednesday nights, he went to Nineveh and reached that dark place with the truth of 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 salvation. Then he came to Babylon. Then he came to Persia. He came to Rome. And he has come to us. And he has come to us. And his message has been revealed to us by his prophets, by his servants, by his apostles, and most gloriously through his son, Jesus Christ. God is a missionary God. And he's reaching to bring people to salvation. And he still uses people like you and me, imperfect for his glory. So we have God who is a missionary God reaching to save rebels from the judgment that is to come. Is this a God worth serving? Oh my. 
I'll close with this. And thank you for hanging with me. Is God worth living for? You know my answer. Absolutely. He is the only God. He is the only true God. And his kingdom, his kingdom is of the greatest value. What did Jesus say? The kingdom of God can be, compared to, it can be compared to a field that a person found a treasure and it was of such great value that he went and sold everything he had so he could buy that field and get that, that treasure. That thing was of the greatest value. That's what he says the kingdom of God is like. It is worth everything you have. Everything. What does the kingdom of God cost you? Two answers. It costs you nothing and it'll cost you everything. It's worth everything. Is he worth serving? Yeah. Let me ask you this. Then how are we to live in a world that is increasingly antagonistic to this glorious, wondrous, heavenly Father? Well, the first thing is you need to be born from above. You need to be reconciled to this God. And if you've never been reconciled to God, if because of your rebellion against God and all of us have sinned, and if in your rebellion against the God who has created all things, You are separated from God. You will die in your sins. And God, the judge, will, like we saw, will consign you to everlasting shame and contempt. That's what he says. All right. That's the bad news. But it is the truth. The good news is this, is that we serve a missionary, messianic God. And he has provided a way for you not to go into eternity in shame and contempt, but rather through his son, Jesus Christ, who bore our rebellion on the cross. He shed his blood that you and I, as he shed his blood, he died as a substitute for you and me so that you and I can have peace with this great and mighty God. How do we live faithfully to this God? First of all, be reconciled to him. If you have never come to Christ, if you have never um, followed Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right now, Jesus, Jesus, what was Jesus' command to people? Follow me. If you've never followed Christ, today's the day. My wife and I would love to talk with you. Um, Probably just about anybody in here would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. First thing to live for God is to be reconciled to him. And you will do that through Jesus Christ. The second thing is that we will mature and grow and we will become unwavering, steadfast, prayerful, unconformed, unmolded, uncompromising. And we will do that through as God fills us with his Holy Spirit and we grow and mature and learn and draw near to him, we will be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That sounds good to me. I'm so far from being conformed to the image of his son. I look nothing like Christ, but I can tell you this. I look more like Christ today than I did 10 years ago. Not from anything of myself, folks. It is all the gracious mercies of a God who saw fit to call me his child. I got nothing to respond to other than, well, here I am. Can you use me? Let's stand and let's pray. There is none holy as the Lord. There is none beside thee. There is no other rock like our God. So have mercy upon us, Lord. We thank you. You are totally and completely worth living for. You are the God of gods and King of kings, Lord of lords. You are the highest, most exalted Lord of all things. There are no other gods, only you. And we humble ourselves and bow before the great King. 
And we thank you, Father, that you have loved us with such a great love that you needed nothing from us, but yet you took on flesh, dwelt among us in your son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, who ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to come and dwell with us and cause us to become more and more like Christ. Oh, have mercy upon us. Let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us be prayerful. Let us be grounded upon your word and grant us favor and mercy this day. For Christ's sake, amen.